Global Crisis Bible Prophecy Health and Preparedness You are just in time. 11th Hour Dispatch Twenty-five hundred years ago, in ancient Babylon, the situation of social control was not a whole lot different than it is today. You might remember the history of the Jews in captivity in Babylon. They took this people in and then they needed to propagandize them. The best and brightest, maybe Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, for example, needed to have their minds shaped according to the Babylonian way of thinking. So what do you read? And right out of the gates in Daniel 1, you read that these youth were trained in the thinking, the literature of Babylon. Their minds were to be formed and shaped according to the Babylonian worldview. Now, of course, God's people resisted this. But this was the aim and the agenda of the social elite, the the elite of that society. Well, fast forward to 1962. In a report called The Role of Schools in Mental Health, we read the following, a federal document. Education does not mean teaching people to know what they do not know. It means teaching them to behave as they do not behave. This session, Schooled Part 2, we're looking at social control. That this schooling system was not just an industrialist concept to corral the masses into a factory system to work as cogs in their machines, but it is a system of a social agenda, a worldview shaping. You're going to see some incredible things about the history that continues to today. We have now two definitions of education under our belt. The first definition from the first session is that the definition of education, scientifically defined, said William Torrey Harris, the U.S. Commissioner of Education, is the subsumption of the individual. So get rid of individuality. Merge the individuality into the collective, and we don't want people to be thinkers. The second definition we now have is education does not mean teaching them to know things that they don't know. Education is behavior modification. We mistakenly think that education exists, that the schools exist to teach the children the three R's. We think that it's trying to help them to become the best them that they can become. Education is not about intellectual learning. It's not about learning skills and becoming accomplished and having an initiative to to go out and, and, and be creative and live life, chart your own course as led by God. No, it's about falling in line, behaving how you do not behave. It's behavior modification. The U.S. Department of Education in 1969 put out another document called designing education for the future. And they also defined education. The definition of education, according to the U.S. government, a means to achieve important economic, from last session, but and social goals of a national character. We're talking about those social goals. How do you form society? The nation's school system exists to serve these important goals, the social goals. And this agenda to remake the schools began over a hundred years ago. Let's go all the way back to actually one of my favorite books about education. It is my favorite. It's called Education. And in 1903, this book was published, and it's the best philosophy of education you'll ever read. 
And by the way, I'm doing a follow-up seminar to this. This is a pretty dark history, isn't it? I mean, we're, we're pulling back the veil and exposing some pretty lurid things and, and bad things of what's going on. But we need to say, hey, what is God's plan? What is God's answer to this? Because there was a movement forming at the same time. These streams of history are running parallel with each other. The Great Advent Awakening, the movement of the remnant people, at the same time as this schooling propaganda mechanism. How do we understand this story? How do we understand the schooling, or the educational, rather, methods that God has birthed within His people? That's a follow-up seminar I'm going to do called Undoctrinated. But before I get to that, i got to share with you, rather than education being the most popular book in 1903, it was actually Thomas Davidson's History of Education. This was the book everybody was talking about in the first couple of years of the 1900s. This actually was the textbook for teachers of the College Department of Education in the the Teachers Training of America. In the preface to the book, Thomas Davidson states, My endeavor has been to present education as the last and highest form of evolution. So now we have a number of definitions of education here. Education is not about children learning and becoming individuals. It's about evolving, evolution. Now this isn't evolution of the species, because the species human is not going to change from that. What this is is social Darwinism. The evolution of society into something else that we are going to construct. And this evolution doesn't happen naturally. They believe that the survival of the fittest and the natural selection takes place and species evolve according to nature's forces, but society must evolve according to the forces that we will put in place. And so we must have social controllers. We must have a system. And you know what? The old ways are going to have to give way to the new way. You know, the old ways of self-reliance and family and small-time community and small farms. And this is going to have to be removed in order for the new highly evolved social order to take place. And how is it going to take place? Schooling. Listen to Elwood Coverley. This is probably the most important person, again, in moving 20th century education into place. He wrote the following. However, however much we have lost interest in the old problems of faith and religion, the American people have come to believe thoroughly in education. So schooling is taking the place of religion. Faith and religion are out, schooling is in. And, and this theme, by the way, is, edu- is, is, is echoed by the National Education Association themselves. And they stated, in, in today's time even, in 1997, you hear from Bob Chase of the National Education Association. He says, education is the modern world's temporal religion. So education is the religion of today. But back to 100 years ago, John Dewey was very clear. We saw this quote last time. Every teacher should realize he is a social servant set apart for the maintenance of the proper social order. The teacher always is the prophet of the true God and the usherer in of the true kingdom of God. So these elites believe they are bringing something in, a new kingdom, a new utopia, if you will. This is the true kingdom of God. They were true believers in this. Although it's straight from the heart of Satan, as we've seen. But Social Control was written by Edward Ellsworth Ross. And this is a book that was published on on how you control society. I mean, you see it right in the title, Social Control. It was published in 1901. And this book revolutionized the social sciences. It had huge influence on, on political science, on psychology. And Edward Ross used a very interesting analogy when he announced the intentions of the social engineers. Here's what he said. He said their goal was to collect little plastic lumps of human dough from private households and shape them on the social needing board. So collect your children, 
Collect the children from the private households and we will do the shaping. Doesn't that remind you of the Rockefeller Education Board's quotation where they said, we, we are, in our dreams they yield themselves with perfect docility to our molding hands. This is exactly what's been happening for over 100 years. And Ross wasn't the only one saying it. Arthur, uh, Arthur Calhoun wrote a book called A Social History of the American Family. This, is, this was the establishment text uh, on how family was becoming less important in the 20th century, turn of the century times. He explained, the child passes more and more into the custody of community experts who are qualified to perform the complexer functions of parenthood. So who is doing the parenting now? It's the community experts, the state, the the schools, the public school system. They are the ones, the community experts, who are doing the parenting, the complex, difficult things that parents somehow can't do, even though they've done for thousands of years. Elwood Elwood Coverley, again, one of the most important people in the formation of 20th century schooling, stated also that in particular, the attitude toward control of the child is likely to change. Each year, the child is coming to belong more to the state and less and less to the parent. The plea in defense that the child is my child will not be accepted much longer in society. That's pretty chilling, isn't it? And this is not brand new, even in Coverley's day in the early 1900s, way back in the 1840s when man was getting this movement underway, just a couple of decades later, in 1867, he, he stated the following, We then who are engaged in the sacred cause of education are entitled to look upon all parents as having given hostages to our cause. So your children are, are little lumps of dough, hostages being collected from the private homes of America that they are going to shape and form according to their will. And, you know, if you read in, in, in educational councils from, like, the book Education, in, in, in Fundamentals of Christian Education, and Christian Education, and Councils to Parents, Teachers, and Students, excellent Christian educational philosophy books, you read a, what, what might be a pretty radical, from today's standards, view of, of, of education, that, you know, you're supposed to deliver delay formal education until 8 or 10. You shouldn't be pushing so much academics at an early age that you're supposed to equalize mental and physical labor. These are seemingly quite radical things and people react and they get, how could you suggest such a thing? I mean, let's just do school like normal. But wait a minute, maybe school like normal is actually a lot more radical than we thought. Because if you think about it, the idea of parents voluntarily yielding up their children full time, all day, almost year round, for 12 and 13 years, 12 to 13 years of schooling, to be molded by community experts who are largely strangers to the parents, this has got to be the most radical idea in human history. Radical in a negative sense. I mean, if you think about it, it's kind of insane, isn't it? And, and what are the fruits of this? Are families closer together? Are families stronger together now than they used to be? Or the opposite? The communists knew exactly what to do if they wanted to control society. How do you control society? You remove religion. You destroy the family. You get the kids corralled into this system of government schooling. And that is exactly what the Communist Manifesto called for. The 10th plank of the Communist Manifesto wrote that they called for uh, universal schooling. And we also read abolition of the family. Replace home education with social Children should not be educated in the home. That is the greatest enemy. That is the worst possible thing you can have from the point of view of the social controllers. It's not just taking children hostage. It's not just destroying the family. But we also read in the 1990s, they even need to reach the parents. This is a more recent document, Guide to Getting Out Your Message, that says the following. Enlightened social engineering is required. 
parents and the general public must be reached also. Otherwise, the children and youth enrolled in globally oriented programs may find themselves in conflict with values assumed in the home. And then the educational institution frequently comes under scrutiny and must pull back. So you hear them talking about it. They're saying, you know what? We don't want to be scrutinized. We're not going to be able to push our agenda forward as quickly because parents are going to object because we're teaching their children things that the parents don't hold as their values. So we have to reach the parents. We have to reach the broader community, the general, the general public. If, if you watch the news, there was actually a very important high-level government official in the cabinet of the White House who came out and said, we should have schooling year-round. Uh, there, there should be open, the schools should be open for 12, 13, 14 hours per day. And schools should be the center of community life, he said. And, and, and they should have potlucks and programs and lots of things. And by the way, you could, you could arguably favor this sort of thing with altruistic motives. But what is the real movement behind this? The real movement behind this, as you just heard, is to reach the community, reach the parents, and get everybody on board. By the way, potlucks, the center of community and social life, doesn't this sound a little bit like something that the church used to do in the old days and hopefully presently today, that we have our own communities? But now the school is seeking to take place of that all and has been for over a hundred years. Remember in the 19th century, compulsory schooling began with a short term of just 10 to 12 weeks. And now it's nearly the whole year round and they're proposing even more. This behemoth just never stops growing since it was founded in the early, in the mid 19th century. Just as Prussian style modern schooling is coming into American education in the 1900s, around, around 1890 when this movement really started moving forward, you also see the textbooks start to change. And no surprise, you see evolution coming in. You're listening to 11th Hour Dispatch with author, teacher and speaker Scott Ritzmer. For more programs and information, visit 11thHourDispatch.com. What does it take to raise spiritually strong young people in our homes? Well, the George Barna research results are in. Parents who have had actual measurable success, who have raised their children to become solid Christian young adults, these parents engaged in what George Barna referred to as God talk. They actually talked about spiritual things, naturally, continually. Religion wasn't merely a component of their lives, It saturated their lives. Any parents with children in the home need to know this. Write down the DVD title and share it with them right away. It's called How to Raise the Remnant. Now, more than ever, parents are in desperate need of solid biblical counsel to guide us back to God's plan for raising godly children in these last days. Visit 11thHourDispatch.com and use promo code RADIO for a reduced suggested donation rate. Wonderful, merciful Savior, precious Redeemer and friend, who would have thought that a lamb could rescue the souls of men? Rescue the souls of men. Listen to these two statements from these publishing companies. Yale University Press stated, We do not know of any competent naturalist who has any hesitation in accepting the general doctrine meaning of evolution. Macmillan Publishers said, There is no rival hypothesis to evolution. 
except the outworn and completely refuted one of special creation, now retained only by the ignorant, dogmatic, and the prejudiced. So 1895, they're coming in and saying, we're going to remove God, creation, from the textbook, and we're going to bring in evolution because it is the consensus after all, and all the scientists are teaching this and believing it. And it wasn't just the textbooks that were changed. The textbooks were changed to remove God, but even the children's storybooks were changed to, to reinvent the value system of children. This woman on the screen that you see is named Mary Lystad. She's a biographer of children's literary history. And in her writing, she has shown that in the late 19th century, right around this time, the themes of children's books started to change. In the, in the mid-19th century, they were about character development and salvation and things like that. But after 1890, here's what happens. Characters begin to aspire for school credentials rather than experiences and life lessons as the early literature had showed children. Children also were, doing, were not to do any manual labor. That was demeaned. They were not to work at all until their late teens or even later. This, by the way, again, was the opposite of the values of a generation before, where it was presented that, you know, if you're sitting, sitting idly in a school for long periods, that's, that's actually frowned upon in children's literature. So as the 20th century continued, this agenda becomes more pronounced in the textbooks, in the children's literature. And then by 1948, a Carnegie-funded study made the following incredible statement. A society could be completely made over in something like 15 years. The time it takes to inculcate a new culture into a rising group of youngsters. And the Carnegie Endowment wasn't the only group saying this. Harold Rugg, who was funded by the Rockefellers, stated that their aim was scientific reconstruction of our social order. He goes on, a new public mind is to be created. How do you create a new public mind? Only by creating tens of millions of individual minds. I want you to think about that for a second. He just said, we are going to create minds. The child comes as a lump of clay. We are going to create them. We have a counterfeit creator here. This is a scary thought. So this is how you have the social reconstruction of the social order, the scientific reconstruction of the social order. You create tens of millions of individual minds, and then you weld them into a new social mind. He goes on and says, Through the schools of the world, we shall disseminate a new conception of government, one that will embrace all the activities of man, one that will postulate the need of scientific control. We want scientific control over their minds. We're going to create their minds and then weld them together with millions of other minds to create a new social mind. And this is a new conception of government because we have the power over them. B.F. Skinner was a very important individual in the history of control. He founded the field of study of operant conditioning with his studies. And in his field of behaviorism, he really looked into how how do you actually control the mind? And he stated the following. We can achieve a sort of control under which the controlled nevertheless feel free. They are doing what they want to do, not what they are forced to do. There is no restraint and no revolt. By a careful cultural design, we control not the final behavior, but the inclination to behave, the motives, the desires, the wishes. They can get so deeply into crafting and controlling that mind that even the wishes and desires and motives of the child are under their control. And you think what's, manu- what's, what's coming up from within you is, is, is real. It's organic. It's part of your identity. You, you think that you are making your own choices and thinking your own thoughts, but he says, nope, they think they're free, but they're really not. 
We have control over even their motives and thoughts and desires. Bertrand Russell said the population will not be allowed to know how its convictions were generated. And Aldous Huxley said, we are in the process of developing a whole series of techniques which will enable the controlling oligarchy, who have always existed and presumably always will exist, to get the people to love their servitude. So you hear they're using techniques, he said. We're developing techniques, B.F. Skinner, other techniques. What sorts of techniques are going to get people to love their servitude, get people to the point where they will not even know how their convictions were generated, to get people to think they're free even though they're totally controlled? Let's listen to Bertrand Russell tell us about these techniques. It is to be expected that advances in physiology and psychology will give governments more control over individual mentality than they now have even in totalitarian countries. He goes on and says, Fichte laid it down that education should aim at destroying free will so that after pupils have left school, they shall be incapable through the rest of their lives of thinking or acting otherwise than as their schoolmasters would have wished. Diet, here are the methods, diet, injections, and injunctions will combine from a very early age to produce the sort of character and the sort of beliefs that the authorities consider desirable. And any serious criticism of the powers that be will become psychologically impossible. That is a serious statement right there. Watch, he says, watch this. Diet, injections, and injunctions. Now, 2,500 years ago, they had the injunctions in ancient Babylon, the teachings, the orders, the commands, and they had the diet. Remember, they said, you guys are going to be put on this diet. And the guys said, test us in this. And they got away with not eating that diet. But part of the propaganda is food, injunctions. injunctions. They didn't have injections but back then, but today we certainly have that ability. And again, People at the time of Bertrand Russell, at the time of Aldous Huxley, at the time of B.F. Skinner, when these Rockefeller and Carnegie and other institutions are pushing this forward, people at the time were blowing the whistle. The Reese Commission, 1954, U.S. Congress stated the following after their investigation of the secret papers of these tax-free foundations. They said, the concentration of foundation power has tended to promote moral relativity to the detriment of our basic moral, religious, and governmental principles. It has tended to promote the concept of social engineering, that foundation-approved social scientists alone are capable of guiding us into better ways of living. The impact of foundation money upon education has been very heavy, tending to promote uniformity in approach and method, tending to induce the educator to become an agent for social change and a propagandist for the development of our society in the direction of some form of collectivism. The result, the net result, has been to promote internationalism in a particular sense, a form directed toward world government and a degradation of American nationalism. Now, people look back at the Reese Commission and say, well, Congress is just a bunch of conspiracy theorists, and you know, to talk about world government, you just can't, you just can't do that. You've crossed the line there. And, and you know what? When, when, you, when you mention the concept of a conspiracy theory, I, I have to be the first one to say, I do not want to buy into some cooked-up, nonsense conspiracy theory. It's easy to make up a, a, a conspiracy. It's, it's easy to spot them. So don't be fooled by nonsense that is out there. There's plenty of nonsense. But... On the other hand, if we toss out the concept that, hey, actually, maybe there is a powerful elite that has an agenda. No, there just can't be. 
Well, how reasonable is that? We have this knee-jerk reaction. If it sounds conspiratorial, it must not be true. Well, isn't that convenient for the devil to get a message through, an agenda through, because nobody will believe that anything nefarious ever goes on in society. But don't take it from Congress. You can say, okay, these guys are a bunch of, uh, this is Congress, and a national investigation was launched. But uh, some people say they just don't believe it because it's Congress. But let's listen to their words. Let's listen to David Rockefeller. He's, He's a modern Rockefeller. He wrote a book called Memoirs, where he admitted the following. He said, for more than a century, ideological extremists at either end of the political spectrum have attacked the Rockefeller family for the inordinate influence they claim we wield over American political and economic institutions. Some even believe we are part of a secret cabal, working against the best interests of the United States. Characterizing my family and me as internationalists and of conspiring with others around the world to build a more integrated global political and economic structure. One world, if you will. Now, the first time I read this quote, you know, it sounds like he's scoffing at the notion that, well, yeah, you know, we're conspiring. People think we're working against the best interests of the United States. People think we're trying to build one world, one world system here. Listen to the rest of the quote. He says, if that is the charge, I stand guilty and am proud of it. Huh. So we are conspiring. We are trying to build a one-world global political and economic structure that is integrated. We are working against the best interests of the United States. We are part of a secret group, he says. This, all of this is the charge. I am guilty and proud of it. So don't ever listen to a theorist of, just listen to what they say themselves about what they are doing. Then you don't have to theorize, and then you know you're in safe intellectual water. You're drawing rational and logical conclusions when you just allow them to say it for themselves. By the way, this this concept of a new world order, a one world system, how do you move it forward? You know, he didn't mention schooling in the quote, but listen to this statement by Harvard psychiatrist Chester M. Pierce. This was in 1973 at a Children's International Education Seminar. And in this seminar, he was quoted as saying the following by the newspapers who were in attendance. Every child in America entering school at the age of five is mentally ill because he comes to school with certain allegiances to our founding fathers, toward our elected officials, toward his parents, toward a belief in a supernatural being, and toward the sovereignty of this nation as a separate entity. It is up to you as teachers to make all these sick children well by creating the international child of the future. Now that's some quote right there. And people say, why haven't I heard any of this? I hope you've asked that question. How come we were not taught this? Well, why haven't the history books reported on this very interesting history, this very important history? All the way back in 1919, the London Times, on, ironically on July 4 of 1919, the London Times put out a report where they were explaining how the propaganda machine in the United States was underway and was functioning. Listen to what these reports said. Efficiently organized propaganda should mobilize the press, the church, the stage, and the cinema, press into active service the whole education systems of both countries, The homes, the universities, public and high schools, and the primary schools, and then this. Histories should be revised. New books should be added, particularly to the primary schools. Another article in the same issue of the London Times said that a movement to correct the school books of the United States has been started, and it will go on. So in the early 20th century, not only were they bringing this movement in, but they were retelling the story, the history of American education, and in all of American history. 
Because again, they didn't want too much history. Remember, the National Education Association said, get rid of history, bring social studies in, because we don't want people too aware of their own history, because that will, well, as we heard earlier, having too much education, too much intellectual education will cause discontent. Now, as a history teacher myself, I had an occasion to survey dozens of history textbooks and as part of a textbook adoption program. And as I'm looking through these and looking at the the themes and the headings and the, 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 the flow of how they tell the story, I'm going, these are all virtually the same thing. It's almost as if they're reading off the same establishment script. And, and I would hear, you know, this textbook offers this different angle on things, and this one offers a little different hue on the perspective on history. And I'm going, okay, that's a minor little thing, but where is the history of, of, of Edward Bernays and the movement of, of public relations and propaganda? Where is the history of American schooling? How do, where is the history of what the Constitution is actually about and understanding American freedom? All of these things are largely absent from the textbooks, and you get a whole new what's called social history of America. And all the textbooks are pretty much reading off the same script. How does this happen? To financially support this broadcast, visit 11thHourDispatch.com. Here's Scott Ritzema with another final minute message. This quote changed the direction of my life. I was a teacher full-time, and I was starting to present Media on the Brain seminars. And with that ministry starting to develop and grow and come into existence, while I also had a full-time teaching job, I found myself very busy and found myself with a baby at home. And my wife and I had some conversations about how does life look now that this is going like this and this is staying here and the baby's coming. Okay, well, you know what? I read this quote right when we were struggling with that and it says this, Fathers, spend as much time as possible with your children. Which brings me to the next quote. If he is engaged in business which almost wholly closes the door of usefulness to his family, he should seek other employment which will not prevent him from devoting some time to his children. Brought to you by Belt of Truth Ministries.org.